Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to A Conversation with Authors, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times, exploring qualities, tactics, tools, and mindset government executives may need to navigate unsettling times and transform order out of chaos. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. In a world where technological, economic, and societal change seems the only constant, leaders are forced to find innovative ways to succeed and thrive in an ever-disruptive and disrupting world. What are the key processes of innovating? Can innovating be taught and enhanced by continued practice? What are the core traits of an organization that is built to innovate? And how can government executives innovate? and find new ways to lead. I'll explore these questions and more with Dr. Ben Bensow, author of Built to Innovate. Ben, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Michael. It's great um, that you, you accepted and made time for me. Thank you. Before we delve into specifics of your book, Built to Innovate, perhaps you could define some terms for us. What does it mean to innovate? And would you explain a distinction you draw between innovation and innovating. Uh, yes, uh, I, I have uh, to tell the truth. I have noticed over the years that uh, the word innovation as a noun often triggers uh, anxiety and stress among um, employees that I'm working with. They typically think that their boss is expecting them to come up with the next uh, blockbuster disruptive product or service or expect them to create a totally new market space. But I noticed that this tension and fear disappears as soon as I start using the word innovating or to innovate as a verb. They kind of understand that innovating means a process. It's about some activities, a behavior, and that it can be learned and even improved with practice and you can use some tools and techniques. So for me, innovating is simply about looking for new ideas, developing and testing them and somewhat with no guarantee to find some good ones when you start. So another maybe analogy that can help, if innovation is the tip of an iceberg uh, that is above the water level, what you see under the water is the collective pool of innovating capabilities of the organization. And that's what the book Built to Innovate is about, is how to create and nurture these collective capabilities. Wonderful uh, start off. And you know, it, it leads into my next question, which is you, you, you make that distinction, turn it into a very, kind of an action-oriented approach to finding ideas and making them real. How can one jumpstart the practice of creativity in order to do that? First, I, I start with the assumption that everybody accepts, by the way, that everybody has creative potential. 
right? And everyone in, in the organization has a customer that they're trying to make happy. I mean, the customer can be an internal one or an external customer, right? So the key is to give every employee the permission to exercise and develop their creative muscle and allow them, you can do just do that by allowing them to be involved in any sort of innovating activity. So as a start, it can be as simple as giving them, let's say 30 minutes on a regular basis uh, where they can switch from their execution mindset to an innovation mindset. Ask them to, I don't know, to visit a customer and simply observe or explore and try to understand what the customer is trying to accomplish, how they're struggling to get their job to be done. So what I'm seeing is that at least during those 30 minutes, they should look at their customer with a deep, deep sense of empathy. So, I mean, uh, actually I can give you an example. Uh, Starwood, the, the global hospitality company, once they had a, a conference in, in Paris with 700, I think it was 700 frontline managers attending. So we organized for them a simple exercise. So we put the 700 attendees in 64 teams, and then we send them out to roam in the, in the streets of Paris with uh, notebooks and cameras. And the challenge was for them to find images and experiences and insights that captured the customer's life. Three hours later, they came back. It was amazing. They had amazing stories. They, they generated 1,700 ideas. And it was just a question of capturing those ideas, sorting them out, and some actually moved to, to innovation projects and some actually became new, new services they offered. And to tell you, none of the 700 people who took part in this exercise were a specialist of innovation. I remember one of uh, the participants later told us that, that he said, oh, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know I was a creative type, but, but now I think I can do it. So what I'm talking about is very simple activity like this can help jumpstart the, the practice of, of creativity. It doesn't have to be a complicated thing. That's a wonderful perspective. You note in Built to Innovate that organizations must constantly succeed at two very different and you know seemingly contradictory activities and you referenced execution earlier uh, but you juxtapose execution and innovation and you refer to them in the book and i found this very clever as twin engines that organizations must operate simultaneously can you tell us more about these engines the issue here is that to succeed and and thrive over the long term we're talking about doing this over the long term so organizations and and their leaders, they indeed need to constantly excel at two different, somewhat, you know, people think contradictory activities. First, they must execute today's strategy. They must be exceedingly good at doing what they do today, designing, delivering the goods and services that the customers are expecting. And they must do that at the highest level of quality, efficiency, convenience, uh, affordability. So this is, this is 
what I would refer as the challenge of execution. And this is what I call the execution engine. So this is something that leaders everywhere spend a lifetime uh, perfecting. But at the same time, these leaders, they must imagine the organization's future and help bring it into being. So they need to excel also at rethinking, reimagining and improving what they're doing today, find new ways to improve the products and services as well as create entirely new ones that no one have, has thought about before. And this is what I call the, the challenge of innovating and the, the function of the innovation engine. So as you can see, every organization needs to operate with both engine at the same time working in parallel. So execution, of course, is, is and still stays tremendously important. And, and as you know, many business schools and consultants, they continue to develop and train people in execution methods. So what Built to Innovate is about is essentially the, the other uh, engine, the innovating engine. This is where I explain how to build this engine, yeah. That's wonderful. And you know, uh, you also talk about the importance of an organization as they're building uh, that engine to shift from what you call a supplier side view to a customer side view. What do you mean uh, by that? And how does this shift relate to, you know, cultivating a habit of innovation? You see, when people are working in the execution engine, they generally take a, a supplier view of their work. Companies typically put together a team with the best specialists to design and deliver the optimal solution for a given customer challenge. They are effectively operating in, in what I call a problem-solving mode. As you can imagine, this is a very convergent mental process. In contrast, when, when people switch to work in the innovating engine, they need to take a customer side view of their work. Now they are rather in a problem finding mode. What new problems should we be solving for the customers? They're now in, in listening mode and they're trying to broadly understand the life of the customer, the, the job that they're trying to do and cover new problems unexpressed uh, needs, latent desires. So in innovating mode, the challenge is to, one, listen to the voice of the customer. And this is what I was you know, referring to as listening with empathy, but they also need to learn how to listen to what I call the silence of the customer, what they don't tell you. And they don't tell you either because they don't know themselves, or maybe because they don't think it's your problem to solve, to start with. I can tell you um, the story of how Philips, the Dutch uh, consumer electronics company, how they developed uh, the first kettle with a lime scale filter. So it's one of our consultants, uh, a consultant in our research team who told me about the experience he had. They were asked to help them uh, boost their market share in the British market for kettles. So the, the, the project leader had uh, members of the team literally live in customer homes for a while. And after a few days, uh, some of the team members 
kind of noticed a problem that no customer had ever complained about. This is the, the, the lime scale from the tap water that accumulates in the kettles. I don't know if you ever noticed that, but in some regions you have a lot of a lot of calcium in the in the in the water. So there's there's lime scale. So of course, customers they always knew about the problem of the lime scale, but they never thought that it was a problem for the kettle manufacturers to solve. They thought this is a problem they, they typically complain about to the water authorities. So you see, just by listening to the silence of the customer, Philips was able to develop actually the first kettle with a mouse filter to capture the lime scale as the water was poured into the cup. And this way they completely re-energized their market share in, in the UK market. So this is what I call listening to the silence of the customer. And, uh, and I suggest some simple tools and techniques in, I think it's in chapter 10 of the book. Yeah, and you also, I mean, it's fascinating, that little anecdote, because you also talk about the importance of looking, and, and then that really ties to that anecdote. Ben, you note that innovating is a habit to be always practiced, and that one can innovate in everything one does. I was fascinated by that insight. Could you elaborate on it? So, we, we t- now, Michael, we're talking about innovating. You remember the verb? Huh? So, for me, innovating is like a muscle. The more you practice, the better you get. So just like health-conscious people who exercise or go to the gym on a a regular basis, everyone in the organization should routinely be involved in some innovating activity. And I told you, it can be as simple as spending 30 minutes looking, listening to the customer, but with empathy for once. And yes, uh, I also uh, noticed in my research that organization can can also innovate in everything they do, not only in the product and and the services, but they can also innovate in their internal processes or their functions, like you know in HR or or legal. So you may remember I talk about a Kortsar. Uh, a Turkish company I worked with. So this is uh, a supplier who manufactures fabric that is used to reinforce tires for cars. Once uh, one of their innovation teams, they developed uh, an idea to improve their employee onboarding and training process by simply proposing that every worker be assigned a buddy. The, the buddy would serve as a guide and a mentor for the, the worker for the first uh, year on the job, a- a- answering any kind of questions and helping them understand the, um, the company culture, if you want. So once they, uh, they implemented this system, it tremendously reduced the uh, stress on the HR function and the trainers I mean, they tell me it even created like several lasting partnerships. So now at Quartza, this is an embedded process and they call it buddies forever. So you see that it's, um, it's just a question of um, looking for innovation, not only trying to disrupt the industry, but looking for large or small uh, changes in, in very unexpected places. 
And by the way, just uh, just a side note for those who 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 might not know how to start their innovation training <laughs> program. Uh, uh, I, in chapter ten in the book, I I offer a set of simple tools and and techniques to to learn how to innovate. And I even describe a, a seven-step process methodology that uh, uh, an employee or a project team can use to look for new ideas. So you can think of the tools as the machines that you find uh, in a gym. You know, when you try to strengthen your arms or your legs, you use different machines. So, And then the seven-step process methodology is like a full training program. And the bottom line here, Michael, is that if uh, uh, the, the more you practice, the better you get. And also, the better you get, the less you have to rely on the tools to innovate because they become second nature to you. That's a great point. So, you know, Ben, what what prompted you to write Built to Innovate? And why a new book on innovation? And how did you conduct your research for the book? Uh, I noticed many people think you need a, a, a genius leader or to be a startup to innovate. Not true. In, in doing the research for this book, I found established companies, even century-old companies, able to innovate. How? Well, just like I said earlier, they don't look for huge industry-changing effects, but for small and important changes in sometimes unexpected places. And for this, they use continuous innovation, innovation of all kinds and driven by everyone in the organization. And I saw leaders in this organization build from the ground up. They built an innovating engine in the company, uh, some sort of a protected space where anyone can innovate where they can innovate in anything they do and where innovating had become a habit. So I wanted to, to document and, and codify what I had learned from all of these uh, transformation stories that I had witnessed and, and, and try to codify them into a set of concepts and frameworks and a methodology that I could share with a wider audience. That was really the, the motivation. Ben, would you tell us more about yourself and uh, your research areas of interest? Well, you might have guessed I'm uh, I'm French, and uh, uh, originally trained as a, as an engineer, engineering in civil 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 and mechanical engineering. And uh, at the age of 22, I I left for for Japan on a, uh, a Rotary Foundation scholarship. And uh, I ended up staying there for five years. I mean, the scholarship was actually for two years, but I, I liked it and stayed for five years. So I, I first learned the language and, I, and then I got interested in, in studying management, in particular, Japanese style management. If you remember, these were the days where Western managers were flocking to Japan eager to understand the secrets of, um, you know, the secrets behind the Japanese production system. So I, 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 did, I did a lot of work in that area. Then I, uh, I got married in Japan and, uh, and then left for MIT to, to do a PhD in management. At MIT, my, my thesis was about supplier relations in the Japanese auto industry. 
That uh, uh, got me a job uh, back home in France uh, at INSEAD, as, as you may know, the, the business school for the world. And, and then I got interested in, in finding out what we could still learn from the Japanese firms, but this time in the field of innovation. And this is how I got involved with many firms around the world, I mean, including Japanese ones, and try to find out how they they managed innovation and 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 I think you know the the rest of the story by now. What are the key processes of innovating? We'll explore this question and so much more when the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. My guest today is Dr. Ben Bensow, author of Built to Innovate. Your book uh, sets a real good, um, it's a very practical uh, approach to innovating. And uh, I want to delve right into some of the tools and techniques and insights you provide. So Ben, would you identify the three key processes of innovating, and perhaps you could walk us through these processes. So the, the idea here is that just like uh, an organization's execution engine, you know, it has uh, an execution engine as a governance structure and is driven by formal processes and has a distinct culture. So in the same way, when you build an innovating engine, it also has a governance structure this is something I refer to as the I-team. And it also has processes. I mean, I identify three key processes, creation, integration, and reframing. To build the innovating engine, which you remember will operate in parallel to the execution engine, everyone in the company must be engaged in these three processes, innovating process, in addition to their role in the execution engine. So creation is the process by which the organization continuously generates new ideas. I mean, ideas, new ideas is the raw material of innovating. So these new ideas can relate to practically any activity uh, that the uh, organization performs, which means that the process of creation is constantly happening in every department and division of the organization. So now, Integration is a second process in the innovating system. So this is the process by which the dispersed innovation capabilities and resources within the firm are brought together 
in a corporate-wide innovation capability, you know, the, the, what is under the water, you know, when I use the analogy of the, the iceberg. So you can think of integration as the process by which the organization connects the dots among the ideas that are spinning around the organization. So the connecting network may, by the way, also extend beyond the boundaries of the firm, I mean, including you know, external uh, innovation partners like customers, suppliers, startup companies, academic institutions, research centers. So on top of this, the integration process also includes a system that you use to evaluate, select, support, and channel the best ideas that come out of the creation process and to channel them into the execution engine. And thirdly, the reframing uh, process is the one to prepare the future. So every organization must keep questioning its existing strategy, even while it is implementing it. So continually challenging the accepted dogma, conventional orthodoxies, and the underlying shared assumption on which the execution engine is operating, this is what the reframing process is about. Now, what I discovered is that people at every level in the organization all have a contribution to make to these three processes of innovating. I was wondering uh, if there's a way, maybe you even alluded to this, Ben, but how do these processes interact and complement one another? Do you have anything to add in that area? Well, I mean, you can, you can see by definition, they feed into each other, right? I mean, the creation process, so the creation process is the one that generates the ideas. But these ideas need to be connected to be moved into the execution engine. So that's why you need the integration process. And without the, the ideas, the integration process doesn't have any, any new business, any new products to move to the execution process. And at the same time, without the explicit permission to innovate and the protection, the protection from the leaders, frontline innovators, they would not feel the freedom and have the psychological safety to challenge the status quo or you know, uh, redefine what the, the company is about or what products they should be giving. So the, the creation process needs the reframing process to be able to operate. So the, the three processes are interdependent and feed into each other. Well, that's a wonderful point. I was wondering you know, when, when you're immersed in execution, we are focused on following you know, standard processes, procedures as efficiently as possible, uh, that it's almost impossible to achieve the necessary distance from the execution to actually innovate. How does the process of reframing, as you described earlier, kind of solve that issue and give you that buffer? Yeah, this is this is not this is not an easy task for for any organization because as you can see, the innovation and the execution engines are so different in their management styles and structures. So the execution engine is, is really about control. And it's inevitable in some ways that most companies will create layers of hierarchy, you know, sophisticated control system and vertical silos, typically defined around specific problems to be solved. So you like you design a solution, then you have marketing and sales to sell the solution and then a delivery system to deliver the solution to the customer. And all this gradually discourages innovating behavior. 
In contrast, the innovating engine is less about control and more about delegation, communication, collaboration, team building. So it's more about working in, I would refer to them like horizontal, not silos, but horizontal teams that are defined and focused around the customer. So it is then important for the company to create a protected space and time to help reduce the distance between the innovators and the customer. So you remember I talked about Korsa, the Turkish uh, manufacturer of fabric. So what they do is that they send innovating teams into the factories operated by their customers. And they have the, the teams literally camp out for days at a time uh, to just observe uh, what's happening around the plant and, and talk with employees about what they see. One uh, tire plant, they had noticed that workers, uh, customers' workers were struggling to, to safely uh, handle rolls of, of fabric uh, that had been loaded on the trucks. So the innovating team, uh, they realized immediately that uh, they were actually peeking at the, at the customer problem that Corsa had never been aware of, and even the customer never had complained about. So they were later able to solve the problem by developing a, a simple improved method to handle the rolls of fabric, and they trained their customers to use it. And this way they reduced uh, the, the resources needed from 90 minutes and three employees to 12 minutes and a single worker. So this is, this is a very simple way to be able to create that distance. You have to create that space where the innovator is with the customer or closer to the customer. You know, it's fascinating. I, I, was, I was noticing that when you're reading your book, but I was, I was wondering, how has the study of how, you know, the term innovation-centered organizations operate helped you to develop what you call in the book the built to innovate framework. And perhaps you could take this time to kind of introduce to the audience the BTI framework. Well, uh, uh, working with and, and, and kind of researching established uh, organization around the world, and, and also you notice is they are all in different industries. They're not the usual suspects of, uh, you know, the high tech or entertainment industries. We can learn from many different types of companies about how to in innovate. So they are, I observed them, I researched them, and I, they helped me identify some patterns of practices of behaviors and attitudes. And then I tried to codify that. So I, I had all of these data, and I tried to make sense out of it. So first, as I said before, I noticed that innovating implied generating lots of new ideas. And this is how you know, uh, was born the creation process. Then I noticed that the, their challenge was to, to connect these ideas to other ideas and to the people and resources that are needed for the development and the implementation of these ideas. And this is how the idea of the integration process jumped to my eyes. And I noticed that this could not happen, as a matter of fact, this could not happen without the explicit permission and the desire and the drive to challenge the status quo and the current assumptions uh, of the organization. And, 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 and that is exactly what the reframing process is about. 
And then digging deeper to try to understand these three processes, I realized that everyone in the company had a critical role to play in this in these three processes. So all three key roles in, in any organization, the frontline employees and managers, the middle managers, the senior leaders, all have an essential role to play in each of these three key processes. So this is how the, the Build to Innovate or BTI framework came about with having three rows and three columns. You mentioned earlier, Ben, about this like idea that some people think that innovation could be a bottoms up or a top down. But who's responsible for innovating within a company or an organization and why? Yes, I mean, you're right. I mean, pe people, I feel that uh, many people think that innovation just comes from the leaders. <laughs> Not at all. Even if the CEO and the board are ultimately the ones responsible for innovation. I mean, as you say, I guess in the US, this is where the buck stops, right? So, so but, but people at every level in the company have a responsibility to contribute to this, uh, this what I call the three processes of innovating. So I'm coming back again. I mean, I, I like this example because it's a very traditional commodity kind of uh, manufacturer company that has become very innovative. So uh, coming back to uh, Korsa, the tur Turkish manufacturer. So Cenk Alper, who was then the CEO. So what he did, he created a program to democratize innovation. And this is how he presented it to me. You know, he wanted to democratize innovation. So he called it, TPM, Total Productive Maintenance. And in this program, they provide full innovation training to frontline employees. So now the frontline employees, not only they have innovation to innovate, but they are in fact expected to innovate. So this is how the frontline innovators are responsible, you know, uh, and make a, a contribution to the creation process. Middle managers also have an important role to play. And you can imagine, in particular, in the, in, the, in the integration process, they are the ones who literally have to create the time and space for the frontline employees to innovate. And then, like at Corsa, they, they introduced a process to select ideas. So they called it a stage gate process to winnow, channel, and select ideas for implementation before they get transferred to the execution engine. So, and then to stimulate innovation and learning and, and, and to protect innovative concept from excessive pressure, uh, the Corsa StageGate uh, idea selection process actually positively discriminates in favor of new businesses. What they do is that they exempt new ideas from the company's usual profit requirements for the first five years. So this gives these new businesses a chance to grow to scale and to take care of any of the, the possible flows they might have in their profit model. So that's middle managers, right? And then finally, I would say that Jank Alper and the C-suite uh, were the ones who were also responsible <laughs> for innovation and very importantly for the reframing process. So he's the one who, who put innovation at the core of Corsa strategy. And he's the, the one who encouraged everybody in the company to question the assumptions about the business, 
to question the very identity of the company and to question who should be their customers. So what he did is he actually reframed the company as he called it the reinforcer. So instead of being a commodity supplier of fabric to the tire industry, he reframed the company as an innovative solution provider to any reinforcement problem. And this is how Corsa entered completely uh, new markets in, in construction, in electronics, and even in aerospace. I mean, they provided the material fabric for, for, for the shuttle at some point. I mean, just to, to, to give you a sense of what happened uh, today, Corsa is, is considered one of the most innovative companies in the country. I mean, it is number three, I think, in, in, in R&D capabilities among all Turkish companies, and, and they have won numerous uh, awards from, from all sorts of uh, institutions. Fascinating. Um, it, it leads into another, with these examples that you're providing, and, and the book is chock full with practical applications of your insights. And, but I was wondering, how can an organization turn the goal of innovating into that concrete habit we talked about earlier that is embedded in the organizational culture? What, what, what can they do to do that? To turn innovating into, into, into habit, as a matter of fact, it's, it's not very difficult because uh, I discovered that, that, that people want to innovate. Uh, now, having said that, you need to motivate them to, to do this innovating work. So, and for people to innovate, they need three things. They need to feel able, capable, and they need to feel motivated. So first, managers must give them permission to innovate. I mean, sincerely give them permission to innovate. That is what I call you know, uh, letting them feel able, if you will. Then they must give them the skills. So training or coaching, they must give them support. Time is a very important one, other resources. They need to give them tools that they need to be able to innovate. So this is to make them feel capable. And then thirdly, they must nurture in people the desire to innovate, make them feel motivated. And to motivate frontline employees, many organizations I've researched offer different ways. I mean, to inspire them, to challenge them via hackathons, for instance, and you know, corporate challenges. And each time they, they make a contribution to innovating, they give them uh, uh, appreciation and, and recognitions. I've seen some companies uh, offer additional innovation training or certification to people, and they publicly celebrate the successes. I mean, public presentations to, to conferences or to the executive committee. But you see, Michael, I rarely seen people use monetary incentives to get uh, frontline people involved in innovating. Uh, those who get incentives are mostly the middle managers, um, not, not the frontline people. Um, I was wondering, you come up with a term, the I-team. What's the role and purpose of the I-team? Uh, so as I said uh, earlier, the, the, like the, the execution engine, it has a governance structure, processes, and a culture. This is exactly parallel. The innovating engine also has a formal structure. We already talked about the processes, huh? the three key processes. So the, um, the governance structure for the, for the innovating engine is what I call the IT. 
So uh, at, uh, typically at the board level of the C-suite level, you find what I refer to as the I committee, the innovation committee. And this is where the, the, the funding and the selection process is ultimately done. You might, you might have innovation committees at maybe at the business unit level as well, but, but, but uh, this is the innovation committee that kind of selects and funds the, the ideas. At the local level, you find innovation coaches, I-coaches, innovation coaches, and innovation coordinators. So the innovation coaches are usually people who are trained and certified by a central corporate unit. I refer to them as I trainers, and uh, I mean I could go through the many examples I talk about in the, in, the, in in the book. But a lot of companies created a central unit dedicated at training coaches, and then these coaches are activated locally. So these these coaches they act as local resource uh, for individual innovators or project teams that are seeking to innovate. So they they. They get the, the innovation coach to come and train them, guide them through how to use the tools and techniques and help them move their ideas through the review and selection process all the way to you know, the presentation to the innovation committee. And then there's another uh, category of people I call the innovation coordinator. And it's also an important resource uh, at the local level where ideas are sent uh, on a regular basis, and the innovation coordinators usually give a response to the people coming up with the idea within within two to three weeks, and they they move the the ideas through the selection process. So, uh, among all of these people who constitute the I team, except the I trainers, who are like really full time training people, all the others they actually have another another responsibility as part of their execution engine role. What are the core traits of an organization that is built to innovate? We'll explore this question and so much more when the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. My guest today is Dr. Ben Bensal, author of Built to Innovate. What are the core traits from your research and your uh, work uh, of an organization that is built to innovate? Uh, the traits actually are... are 
kind of uh, straightforward from, from, from the BTI model, if you will. I mean, the first core trait of an organization built to innovate is its ability to inspire individual creativity and initiative in all of its people. And in the book, I describe in details how companies like Bayer or Gore or Quartzite, we talked a lot about, and Starwood have developed this ability. The second trait of an organization built to innovate is its ability to, to link and leverage the distributed pockets of innovating activity and individual expertise across the organization by connecting frontline innovators uh, among themselves, but also with uh, other resources to create a process of organizational learning. And again, in the book, I explain how everyone in the organization, as I said, contributes to this integration process. Uh, and I draw observations from companies like Fiskars in Finland or Allianz in Germany and recruit uh, uh, here in Japan. The third trait I would say is the ability to continuously question itself and challenge the shared assumptions. And here again, I, I mean, I have good examples that uh, uh, explain this, uh, like BSF, for instance, the chemical company, or Marvel Studios, or, or Domino's Pizza, for instance, in, in the US. So the actual tools and methods and processes to carry this, um, this transformation are of course different for different uh, companies and, and, and they of course need to be adapted to the unique uh, situation of uh, every company, every, every organization, I should say. So Ben, do you have any advice or insights on how a leader or an organization can inspire and empower frontline innovators? I mean, again, I'm, I have this deep conviction that uh, people naturally want to innovate. Uh, the, the, the main thing you need to do is really to give them permission uh, to innovate, train them, uh, create a, a protected space to help them close the gap between them as innovators and the customer on the one hand, or between them as innovators and the people who will be responsible for execution of their idea. So for instance, I talk about the, 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 the cement company, Ecosem, where the CEO created joint teams where he takes the, the, the scientists, the people who are developing new capabilities of the cement, and they, he sends them together to the customer to uh, discuss the, the, the products and develop new products. So he creates a space where internally the scientists and the salespeople come together. And this is a very important partnership to, uh, to empower uh, innovation at the front line. That's fascinating. You know, Ben, I was remiss in not asking you about this example that you have in your book about Operation Tech Warrior. Can you tell us more about this example? Oh yes, oh yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a. Actually, it's a very good example. I could have mentioned this one. Uh, a good example of creating a, a space to reduce the the distance between 
the, the, the potential innovators, innovators and, and customers or users. So, uh, I mean, this is a story about the Pentagon and this is a program at uh, I think the Wright State University's uh, uh, center is called the National Center for Medical Readiness. And there they can run um, all sorts of uh, simulations of, of uh, hazardous and dangerous uh, uh, like war game situations. So they have this operation called Operation Tech Warrior, which is a, a series of field field insertions, uh, as they call them, where the engineers from the companies that uh, supply the Pentagon with, with products and software, first they, they get them to go through a two-week training, and then they uh, get them to join a squadron, you call that a squadron, and they go in the battlefield, and they, they can actually see their own products and their solutions in real life with real soldiers. So this is this is a fantastic this is a fantastic uh, uh, example of closing the gap between the innovator and the customer by getting the innovator to literally live the life of of of, of the customer and and understand. Uh, physically, what job they're trying to do. So this is this is a fantastic uh, example for for that. Yeah, I, I found it very I found it fascinating. Um, can you share some practical examples of organizations that have successfully built innovation into its DNA that you may perhaps worked for before? Yes, I I, I could mention quite a few, but out of the Several examples of, again, I, I focused on established companies, as you noticed, right? Out of the uh, several examples of established companies that have successfully built an innovating engine, I could mention uh, Bayer, the, the Pharmacology and Life Sciences Global uh, Corporation based in Germany. So Bayer has, has a rich history of scientific uh, achievements. And they still were able to create an innovating engine and leverage the innovating capabilities of the 100,000 people working in the company. So first, I mean, linking back to the question, I mean, the, the, the description of the I-team, first they made the whole board responsible for innovation. Then they selected 80 senior managers covering all country groups and global functions to support the board as innovation ambassadors. These ambassadors then spent much of their time with middle managers, explaining, advocating, and sponsoring innovation. Then, as I described earlier, they created a formidable support structure for these middle managers. If I remember correctly, between 2016 and 2020, they trained and certified more than a thousand innovation coaches around the world. And finally, to bring everybody into innovating, they created WeSolve. It's a digital platform where any employee can post a problem they're struggling with 
and invite input and ideas from anyone else across the organization. Uh, I, I got a chance to actually uh, visit the website and they tell me that at any given time, about 200 challenges, large and small, can be found on the platform. And uh, until now, I think 40,000 Bayer employees from around the world have participated in WeSolve. Uh, by, by the way, they tell me that the website, I mean, it, it, I saw the website is in English and they have, I think they have 50,000 people who speak English in the company. So that tells you about the level of participation they're getting. So this is, as you see, this is a good example of uh, uh, a systematic approach to, to build an innovating engine and, and, and nurture the innovating capabilities of everyone in the organization. I was wondering if you could elaborate more on what's happening uh, in the government or nonprofit space. And you point out that the insights you provide are generic and aren't sector specific. And that's an important thing to underscore. Could you elaborate? Oh, of, of course, of course. Actually, uh, you you may remember. I mean, we we, we talked about uh, the uh, uh, Operation Tech Warrior, for instance, and there's a there's also a very nice example about a nonprofit called Charity uh, Charity Water. Uh, I also talk about uh, the transformation of the YMCA, for instance. So if you, if you think about uh, all what I said in terms of uh, structures, processes, and even if we go into the, the explicit, the specific tools and techniques, there's nothing that uh, precludes non-governmental or non-profit organizations to do exactly the same thing. And, 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 and this was actually why I insisted to make sure that there would be examples of organizations, as I said, from around the world, from industry, from profit, nonprofit, uh, uh, included in the, in, the, in, the, in the book so that people understand that what I'm talking about is generic. Uh, these, are, these are generic ways to in, bring participation of everybody in, in innovation. Now, it's one thing I found out after reading your book, you you do provide, again, I wanted to make sure that we underscored that you provide examples from across uh, the industry sectors uh, uh, globally. So my last question, Ben, if that's okay, is what is the, what are the key takeaway or the key takeaways for that you would want your readers to get from Built to Innovate? Well, uh if you if you if if you remember, there's a, there's a there's a motto uh, that I use uh, that I propose in the book. Uh, I call it "Don't ask for permission, make others jealous." So, <laughs> as you as you as you notice, this is a wordplay referencing the other well-known motto, which says, "Don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness." So, in my model, if you will. There's no need to be asking for forgiveness because there's already a structured, fully legitimized and protected space to innovate. In fact, the organization wants you to innovate. And uh, instead, I'm, I'm, I'm making a call for middle managers to, keep, to give their team permission to innovate, to send them to training, to, 
to, to get one of the coaches available on call to guide the team and, and, and make sure that other, in a sense, make sure that other middle managers are jealous <laughs> and, and, and come and ask you, how did you get your team to be so innovative? So in essence, you know, uh, anyone in the organization can innovate. You can innovate in everything you do and innovating can become a habit and you can uh, wire innovation in your company's DNA with uh, the, the kind of uh, systematic approach and methods that I, that I described in, in, in uh, Built to Innovate. Yes, it's a wonderful read, as I mentioned to you earlier. And I was wondering, um, Ben, how can folks pick up a copy of your book? Oh, yes, uh, good question. Uh, well, first, uh, <laughs> yes, very important question, I suppose. Uh, well, uh, uh, people can, can, can go to their local uh, country, uh, uh, local country uh, uh, Amazon uh, website, I mean, amazon.com in the US, I would suppose. Uh, or there's actually a website for, for, the, um, for the book called uh, www.btithebook.com. BTI is standing for Build to Innovate. So www.btithebook.com. That's wonderful. Ben, I, I, I want to thank you for joining me today. And I, I really appreciate your time and your insights, um, kind of providing uh, advice to organizations on, on, on building to innovate. So I think it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, insights and a great book. Thanks again. Thank you, Michael. I enjoyed it. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. WFED Washington, WTOP-FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP-FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.
This is 